I love being a family physician and the work I do in all aspects is incredibly hard and humbling and I screw up all the time. But I think this is an incredible field where we have an opportunity to make huge impact on our patients and our community. And so the more we can do to push ourselves to be better and to show up, I think the more we can be that position and create a society that we're all proud of. Welcome everyone to the Primary Care Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies told by doctors working in primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tannick. Hey, welcome everyone. This is the Primary Care Podcast. I am Ross Tannick, third-year med student, bringing you interesting topics in primary care medicine almost monthly. Happy to have you all as listeners to this labor of love of mine. This episode is with Dr. Cleveland Piggott, family physician, master of public health, assistant professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, and vice chair of diversity, equity, and inclusion. We discuss his background and his very day-to-day life and his career. However, the bulk of this discussion is more about topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, in medicine and healthcare. We define some terminology. We talk about why these issues are important, research and statistics on the topic, healthcare policy and solutions, and many more topics, mostly focusing on the issue of diversity. It almost goes without saying that some of these topics are difficult and uncomfortable to talk about, but it is important that we do have these conversations and we go about taking action in these areas as opposed to just posting about it on social media or paying lip service to the topic in general. One of my favorite things that Dr. Piggott has to say is his advice about what the average person, whether in healthcare or not, can do to improve these DEI issues. And I'll paraphrase that he says to get out there and and show up in your community in whatever ways that interest or impassion you. Go out and listen, observe, and see what your community needs and how you can play a part. And he has many more great things to say, so let's take a listen. Here is my conversation with Dr. Cleveland Piggott. I'm a family physician. I'm originally from Georgia. I went to undergrad to University of Georgia and got my biology and psychology degree there and knew I was interested in science, helping people and systems. And so did exploring into other avenues of 
science and healthcare, but fell in love with medicine and went to the University of North Carolina where I got my medical degree. And with that interest in systems, got my public health degree there too. I then went on to do residency at the University of Colorado Family Medicine Residency Program here in Colorado and really loved it and have continued to do work in broad spectrum family medicine care. I don't do OB anymore, though I still love my OB patients and have some special interest in practice transformation, behavioral health, and social justice and health equity issues. And that's led to me starting a group called the Justice League with another colleague at our Department of Family Medicine and to me eventually being named Vice Chair Diversity, Equity, Inclusion in Family Medicine. So I do that while seeing patients and still do a lot of medical education, both at the medical school at CU and with our residents and really enjoy the variety of my job. I literally have no idea what's on my schedule for the next day. Awesome. Well, I, that's uh, super cool because you have so many different worlds you live in, it sounds like. And I, I want to go in so many different directions and ask you about everything. Um, can I ask you a, a little bit about that first interest in science and medicine and helping people? Um, I've read somewhere in doing my research on you that you said you had some um, just great and um, empowering or inspiring mentors growing up. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I think my first mentors were my parents. My parents are both immigrants from Panama and came to the United States like all immigrants for a better life for themselves and their children. My mom has the biggest heart of anyone that you'll ever meet. She wanted to be a nurse, but didn't have the financial. Uh, it wasn't in her, the cards for her at the time. Yeah. And, but she still was always giving up herself. And my dad has always had good balance in his life and put family first. And so with that and my grandfather dealing with Alzheimer's at a time in high school really got me interested in science and the healthcare sort of field. That and a good science teacher as well. And I found that when I was applying to college and looking at places that had some sort of healthcare undergrad degree, I was struggling with the process because my parents couldn't help me. They weren't, they didn't understand the system of college here. Mm -hmm. And so even though I'm smart and, and did well in school, I was missing deadlines, scholarships, all of that. And I realized how important it was for me to just have mentors and people that had been there before to help me. And so I really leaned on mentors ever since then. And that's made me really successful. And so those mentors, got me into my research they got me to find out that family medicine was right to me got me exposure to things and i find i'm really successful because i stand on the shoulders of giants and people that have moved rocks out of the way for me yeah it's definitely true in medicine just like anything else i suppose that people really rely on those mentors not just to help them find out when deadlines are to uh, submit applications and, and things like you were talking about, but, but also to guide us in our own interests. Uh, I've heard that so much listening to other podcasts. There's one called Specialty Stories where 
this physician interviews doctors in all different specialties and so many of them uh, only went down the path that they went down or only uh, found the path because they had a mentor in residency or in medical school or, or somewhere along the lines there so um, that's yeah. cool that you echo that story Definitely. And that's a big issue, especially in primary care and family medicine. If you're told not to do a specialty or that you're too smart or too dumb for some specialty, you're not going to go into it. And so really being in an environment where I felt supported in my choice was really helpful in me finding the right specialty for me because there's actually a ton of people that end up going into residency and then changing specialties after their first year Mm -hmm. because they didn't actually know what it meant to do that field and they didn't get good mentorship or they were discouraged from doing what they really wanted to do. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you then became a mentor and a, and a teacher, uh, as well. And, uh, I I think I want to get to that in just a moment. Um, but before that, I want to talk to you about your, uh, master's in public health. Um, was that a combined program with your MD? Yeah. So kind of, So it was still a separate program, but at the school I was going to, they were able to give me some credit for the work I did in medical school to allow it to just be a one-year program as opposed to a two-year program. I did it after my third year of medical school, so I had some clinical background behind me, which helped sort of shape what I wanted to do for electives and what I wanted to get out of the back here. I think of public health as that eagle eye systems view of everything while medicine's very much boots in the ground what's happening in front of you and so it's nice to be able to go back and forth between those two perspectives when i look at a problem or a patient or a situation that's cool why so why did you decide to go into or or, uh, get that education yeah i love that one-on-one communication with person in front of me, but to truly make a difference in their life, there's very little I can do with that one-on-one situation. The social determinants of health, where that person lives, all of that relates to things outside of my office. And to impact things outside of my office, I wanted to have more training to go about that in a way to be successful and effective. And I found my public health degree was part of what helps me to think about solutions to these very complex, complicated problems. Mm -hmm. The way you put it right there kind of makes it seem to me that every person who goes into medicine should be getting that as well. Yeah, I I certainly wouldn't disagree with that statement. Now medical schools are putting in a lot more about population health and epidemiology in the training, but that wasn't always the case. But I think in order to be a great physician, you really have to be thinking about more than just what's happening in front of you. I think anyone can do that. Mm-hmm. And so what what is the curriculum like in a master's of public health? Um, what kinds of things do you learn? Yeah, so the curriculum varies between the schools and the types of programs and the concentrations. The program that I was in was on health behavior and leadership and so we had some basic classes on stats and how to read a paper and quality improvement over diagnosis was one of the nice electives i took which kind of talks about how we can look at 
how we do harm in medicine, how to know what's a good research study and what's, you know, let's face it, crap. Yeah. And take what you can from that in order to apply it to your patients in the community. I took some classes on health disparities on Latin American migration and health. And so it was a little bit of a grab bag of everything while still having some basics on things that you want everyone to understand. That's cool. Yeah. I, I kind of, uh, almost regret not doing that now though. Now I'm hearing you talk about it in this way. Um, it sounds like such valuable information and background. Yeah. And I, you can get an MPH at any time or go further than that. Some people do it before med school. Some people do it during other people get it after. I think what makes it most useful is knowing how you'd want to use that degree because getting a degree for the sake of degree doesn't really help anyone. If you know what you want to get out of that training, you can focus on that. I've had colleagues that did it after their residency training because they wanted some more information on program planning because they wanted to create a community medicine curriculum, but they wouldn't have known that if they would have gotten that degree years earlier. Yeah, that's a good point. And actually, I believe it's episode three of this podcast. I talked to a, a doc, um, Dr. Stephen, <clears throat> excuse me, Dr. Stephen Miller. Uh, who did that later in, in his career. He was a practicing family physician and went back to get his MPH. Uh, he, I think he said specifically because he ha was having a lot of conversations with pa patients and he realized he didn't know the full breadth of what he was talking about. And he wanted to have the not just the vocabulary, but the background and the understanding that comes with the deeper knowledge there. Um, great. So, um, I want to kind of go forward, ask about your residency. Cause I know, uh, you eventually became a, uh, professor, assistant professor of family medicine. Is that right? That's correct. And you were in a university track. I was in residency. Mm -hmm. Um, what does that look like? How does that differ that from not doing a track in residency? Yeah. So residencies are all so different yet also the same mm -hmm. when it comes to family medicine. Okay. There are literally over a hundred wonderful programs across this country that you can apply to. And each program is required by the governing bodies to teach you a certain amount of things and have a certain structure and we have these things called milestones that everyone needs to achieve but then each residency has their own sort of flavor and their options the patients that they serve are different the electives that they might offer are different the culture is all very different mm -hmm. i chose my program at the university because it had this unique opportunity where i got not only very underserved care experience but also care of what I like to call the ivory tower, where you can find a specialist of maybe like the right fingernail. Uh, and so I knew that going to that program, I'd be able to care for a CEO or for someone who is homeless. Yeah. And so that was pretty unique. We had two different tracks at that time. One was our underserved Denver health track and the other one is our university track. Everything about the program was the same except for just where we did our clinic. And at the clinic that I chose, it allowed me to be in a place known for 
innovation where we had a lot of staff support and the goal was to have people work at the top of their license. And so that was a nice experience and opportunity there. But there's people that were on either track, so our program that go into academic medicine and feel really comfortable and equipped to do that. And so even though it says university, all I think it meant was we were associated with the university hospital. Okay, I get it. I get it. Um, was there also a primary care track there as well? Because I'm trying to remember back to another previous podcast guest, uh, Dr. David Gordon, who graduated probably about 10 to 15 years before you. And he said he went to the primary or, you know, through the primary care track there. I know the internal medicine program has uh, a primary care track. That's what it is. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, well, it actually sort of brings up a point that I was kind of thinking about. I think sometimes people don't understand the difference between like family medicine and primary care. Please break and it down And the way I like to say it is family medicine is a specialty and primary care is a function that family medicine can serve, but other people can serve that function. So we have pediatricians that are primary care doctors. You have internal medicine providers that also serve that role as well. It's just that family medicine doctors more often than some of the other specialties will serve a role as a primary care physician. But there's a lot of family medicine doctors that I would not consider a primary care physician because their right. scope is so broad and they're doing things that are not in the clinical setting. I see. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a simple distinction, but important to make, especially because uh, we talk about it so much in medicine, or at least I think about it so much and uh, write about it. And it's good to be intentional with our words there. Yeah. Um, you talked about how your residency kind of added to and supported your ability to treat diverse populations. Did it ever take away from that ability or ever kind of uh, go against the um, what you were trying to get out of it? Yeah, I'm trying to, trying to think. I find that not necessarily with residency, but just being part of the healthcare system, mm -hmm. our system does not always have the patient at the center of the system. Okay. And so I'm spending a lot of time now and back then finding ways around or a system that I consider to be broken to advocate for a patient. And so if I have a patient that has Medicaid and Medicaid is for uh, people who are poor and pregnant and so forth, I'll see them in my clinic, but then I need them to see a specialist and I can't find a specialist that will take Medicaid because that insurance doesn't reimburse as well as private insurance. And so those are some of the frustrations that you can see in the system that that happens one-on-one -on -one with my patient, but you see it's a bigger sort of issue when certain health systems won't take certain patients or will give different care and have different options for different people, which lead to health inequities. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to put uh, a pin in that because I want to kind of circle back to that topic there of uh, the healthcare system and uh, what we might want to change about it or do do with it. Um, but right now, I want to kind of power ahead and um, just dissect your current roles. You talked about being <clears throat> in still inpatient care, and you talked about being uh, in teaching. 
um, I know you do some diversity work and, and I know you're on the board of some organizations or at least the uh, Colorado Academy of Family Physicians. Um, how does, uh, I know you said uh, you don't know your schedule a day in advance because it's so varied, but uh, how does your life break down in terms of uh, time spent doing those things or effort or what, is, uh, what does your life look like in terms of your, your work life? Yeah, about 20% of my time is seeing my own patients in my clinic. About 10% of the time I spend seeing the patients with residents in the, and supporting them as they're, as they're learning. I have about another 30% of my time that I spend leading some diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism type efforts. And then the rest of my time is split between residency education and medical student education, where I serve roles as like the head of one of their Harry Potter houses with a co-facilitator and do small group teaching and teach on issues of motivational interviewing and other small groups and lectures from time to time. Very cool. And does that sounds it sounds rewarding and fulfilling to be able to have that variety in life and in your career is that is that true for you yeah absolutely i could not do clinical medicine all day every day and i could not be a administrator without seeing my patients so having that variety not only keeps me on the toes but gives me a lot of joy in my practice awesome Cool. Well, um, that kind of brings us uh, to what we've uh, alluded to in a number of different ways already is the concept and issues of diversity in medicine. Um, I don't want to speak for you. Is this is this a, a passion? Is this your passion uh, in your career? Or is it kind of break down like uh, you just said, you are also passionate about all the other things you do? Yeah, I'm passionate about clinical care. I'm passionate about education. I ended up in diversity and inclusion work because I'm also passionate about filling gaps and I'm passionate about health equity. I find that the more you learn about medicine and our system, people that look like me, people who are marginalized, people who are underrepresented minorities, people who are not in the majority, don't get the same care as everyone else and so part of the ways that we have to fix it we know that diversifying our workforce is important being in environments where everyone feels included is important making sure that all of our initiatives and work not just the ones designated as health equity work looks at things in a way that not only puts everyone at the same level but helps people that need more to be successful, that equity type lens. And so being able to fill that gap was something that I found I could do and do well. And so jumped at that opportunity because that can be really powerful, not only for that person in front of me, but for long-term change down the road. And it's gonna take all of us doing that work to truly have a system that we're proud of. And it's hard to find a person in healthcare who thinks our system is truly working and they're proud to be part of it. Yeah, uh, that's, that's true. And that's an interesting thought is that 
there's a lot of people working in healthcare. Could, could one of them say that it's working really well? Probably not too many. Um, it's working well for some people, but definitely not everyone. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, can we go over some, uh, some terminology? Um, I don't have any specific terms that are coming to mind that I want to clear up, or I was hoping that you would clear up, but I know that we just kind of talked about, uh, defining the difference between family medicine and primary care. Is there any words that people use to talk about these issues, to talk about this topic that people oftentimes get wrong or are using incorrectly? And if there's not, that's okay. I just, if you have any on the top of your head. Yeah, I think it depends on who you're talking to and whether it's a terms or just having a deep understanding mm -hmm. of the terms. For instance, equity versus equality. Equality, everyone has the exact same and you give them the exact same, but we know that people don't need the exact same to be successful. Some people need less, some people need more. And that is what equality is. You can think of social justice as as opposed to giving people what they need to be successful, which is that equity sort of piece. It's removing those barriers that make it so that we have to give people different things to be successful. Yeah. Uh, I think another thing is we think about anti-racism and we're, that's becoming more and more popular and common now when we have these sort of discussions. For so long in this country, we thought it was okay to just not be actively racist. But now we're thinking of racism more as a system as opposed to something that someone says towards you. And that the goal is not to not be racist, but to move in the opposite direction, be anti-racism. And that's a systems approach, looking at policies to undo all these barriers that we've placed for certain individuals based on the color of their skin. I love it. Um, that, that was a, a really well said and, and good definitions just so we can, uh, um, talk about these topics in a, a clearer light. Um, so I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. So how do different groups, different, people get treated in medicine. I'm thinking of effective, but do groups get treated differently, whether they be relevant question to ask how different groups get treated? Is it important to more think about things on an individual level? Or do you go and ahead and break down minority groups versus majority groups? Is it black, Latin, Indian, Asian, that sort of thing? How do you go about thinking about these issues in that way? Yeah, I want to sort of, I, everyone is a unique individual. Mm -hmm. And we all have ways in which we are privileged or don't have privilege. So a lack of privilege. Mm -hmm. And that we like to talk about as intersectionality. And so you cannot take the fact that I am a black male 
who is the son of immigrants and separate those different aspects into my experience. All those things combine into how I experience the world and different ways that I'm privileged. I have privilege for being a man. I have, I do not have privilege based on the color of my skin. And all those things interact with each other, depending on where you live, your environment, into our experiences in healthcare. I am a physician. That is a huge privilege. Yeah. Uh, puts me in a completely different socioeconomic status in one way that I do have privilege in that sort of way. And so I think every individual has their story and their stories of how the healthcare system has worked for them or failed them or their interactions with bias or discrimination. Mm-hmm. For instance, I frequently interact with my female colleagues and no matter what they say, because they are a woman, they're not referred to as a physician because women can't be doctors. I have experiences where people of color like me are told to go and take out the trash when they go into a patient's room, despite making it very obvious that they are a provider. In addition to the hierarchies that are in medicine, where the people lowest on the totem pole do not have and sorry, I want to I want to take that statement back. I don't like saying that term. The uh, totem pole is a uh, that is actually a microaggression that I sort of said. A totem pole is a revered in Native American Indigenous societies, and the people oftentimes at the bottom of the totem pole are those that are most revered. But I think that goes once again into some of the aspects of language and culture mm-hmm. of how common statements that we say discriminate against certain individuals and me despite the fact that this is my job slip into that every once in a while as well and so all i can do is continue to be better i agree it's it's can be real difficult to uh find the right words all the time especially when we're so used to speaking uh in the way that we have been speaking for so long yes but yeah i i appreciate uh your uh, dedication for your own self-improvement in that way. I, I tried to uh, hold myself to those standards as well. Yeah. I think the goal is just to always be a little bit better. And as I just showed an example, we all screw up. Uh, I think the goal is to screw up less each time. And some things can be a little thing and other things can be huge and systematic and have huge implications on people's lives. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, another question I, I wanted to talk about is I, I, I wrote this down that I was wondering how you see minority groups supporting each other or not supporting each other. And then I was just thinking about what you said previously is that each person is kind of a, an amalgamation, if that's the right word, of uh, so many different groups. You're a, a male, you're black, you're a physician. Um, that's a lot of different things, right? Just right there. You're an immigrant or son, son of immigrants. Um, so there's a lot going on. So very rarely is someone or almost never, I guess, never is somebody just one thing or one group. Yeah. No one's ever just one group. And then I think another sort of important thing to understand is race is a social construct. 
There's no genetic basis to race. Mm -hmm. And it's a social construct that has power in this country because a lot of the things that have been created in the way that we do things here in America and in many other countries, including Europe and so forth, have been based on race and systematically has empowered or disempowered certain groups. And certain races have been given the least amount of power. And then there's also some in between. And everyone is trying to do the best they can and find some way up. And that is one way you can even see where different groups that might be marginalized have not always been supportive of each other because they're trying to find their way to not be at the bottom of society. Yeah. I think there's a nice book called Cast that I'm reading right now that talks about how a lot of the systems we have in the country here regarding race is actually best to be thought of in what we traditionally think of as a caste system. Cool. Cool. Who's that book by? If you know off the top of your head. Yeah. So it's by, I want to make sure I, I pronounce it correctly. Isabel Wilkerson. Isabel Wilkerson with the book cast. Cool. I like it. I'm just making a mental note. From there, I kind of want to go to a listener question, which uh, in our list here we have uh, in blue. Um, so listener uh, submitted question, what ailments, disorders, and diseases manifest more in certain populations due to a lack of diversity in healthcare? Yeah, and so... That's a little complicated of a question. And so part of the differences that we see those health disparities mm -hmm. are so intertwined. It can be from lack of diversity. It can be due to racism. It can be due to other isms. For example, if you had a person of color who didn't, who also has that intersecting now intersectionality of also being poor harder for them to get care because they are poor as a person of color they then go into an environment where their provider does not look like them and due to implicit biases are not offered the same thing that they would have received if they had not been a person of color or there's this lack of trust due to systemic issues that have been perpetrated to communities of color, which lead to less medical adherence. That then goes into going down the road where this person ends up with worse care and the cycle sort of continues. We find that when we diversify our workforce, sometimes that can help with building some of that trust, but that is not the only thing that is needed yeah. to really deal with health disparities and achieve health equity on certain medical conditions because you can pretty much look at almost every medical condition and you'll find some disparity there in certain groups yeah i bet i believe it um well that kind of brings us to the i guess the follow-up question also listener submitted um which is are there specific ways that we would see better outcomes with more diversity 
in medicine. And that, that question, just reading that question almost makes me embarrassed that I hadn't covered this earlier, 10, 20 minutes ago, when we were talking about uh, just initially getting into this topic of diversity in medicine, which is what are the goals that you have as an educator and as um, with your position uh, in uh, DEI? Yeah, so I have a lot of goals because there's a lot of issues, but I think I like to prioritize them. Sure. I like to think of my role as helping everyone be healthier. And then we need diversity to do that. We need people to feel included and we need to take an equity lens of everything that we do. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to diversity in the healthcare workforce, I want a workforce that is more representative of the communities and patients that we serve in all aspects, gender, race, socioeconomic status, et cetera. If the only people that are doctors are children of doctors, it's going to be hard for our physicians to understand what their patients who are, as a whole, not all children of doctors, <laughs> what they go through, making sure that they speak the same patient's language and how important language is. And so that's one of the goals I have with diversity. When it comes to inclusion, I want to that no matter who we have, that people feel like they're valued and they have a sense of belonging. Because I work in an academic setting, that is my focus, is making sure that we can retain the best and brightest and that we're not losing people because we have an environment where they don't feel welcome. And when it comes to equity, I think of equity mainly in the clinical sort of setting. How do you eliminate those health disparities we see between and among our patients? And how do we make sure that everyone can truly have the health outcomes of the people with the most privilege? Mm -hmm. um, have we seen that in different, uh, I guess, locations, geographic locations, there is either more or less um, diversity in healthcare, that outcomes are either better or worse or the same? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. I think we see that in uh, small little pockets, but even in areas where they're more racially diverse than Colorado, you'll find that the higher you go up when it comes to leadership, and positions of power that that diversity is not there. And so even cities like Chicago and Atlanta and Boston and so forth. And so those disparities definitely exist. And we find that people will do initiatives focusing on a certain group and those groups will have better outcomes when they make those changes. But we still have a long ways to go before we can truly have bright spots in this country where everyone is doing well very interesting very interesting and it definitely makes sense that the illusion of diversity or an inclusion can uh can uh be there well at the top it's the it's the same everywhere you go and and not very diverse or included um so I guess that is a is a good time to ask about how these topics are academically researched and studied and how they're taught. 
Um, I know that those, all three of those are probably changing rapidly or have been um, over the last five, 10 years. I know that even in the last 10 days, uh, this topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion is is as hot as it's ever been. Um, I've just gotten emails from different organizations saying, here is our plan or here is our statement on uh, these topics uh, more than I ever have in the past. So it's definitely on people's minds. Is it being researched more than it has in the past? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think we've been really complacent with the idea and always say it's a good idea. But then when the rubber meets the road, many people are not doing anything about it. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who have been doing this work, but then have been relegated to, oh, that work is not considered academic enough or that work won't lead to your promotion. Right. So therefore, it's it's not for a lack of interest. It's more for a lack of funding. Or... Oftentimes, a lack of funding, lack of support, and support can also mean in time or lack of value. We know what to do with these things. They're just hard, and they require investment. And so there needs to be a complete paradigm shift mm-hmm. in healthcare and where they're willing to put their dollars and prioritize doing it. A lot of people are making statements and forming committees. Right. Are these things, do they mean anything? Are they actually putting funding and resources behind it? We've known for a long, long time that race is a social construct, yet we still have outdated measures like the GFR and how that's different based on race. And now some organizations are removing that from their electronic health record in their system, but people are still very slow to Mm -hmm. do this. And so the literature is starting to grow on this and there's more interest in it, but there is this concern that it's people trying to pat themselves on the back as opposed to making meaningful changes. That's exactly my concern as well. (laughs) Sorry, I cut you off. Where, Where were you going with that? Uh, no, I was just saying that there's often this worry of people trying to check a box as opposed to doing the really hard work, which is first looking internally, mm-hmm. about how each and every one of us have been part of the problem. Yeah. Then devoting effort and time into seeing what's happening around us and create meaningful change. Yeah. Well, so you talked about the rubber meeting the road and for you, where does the rubber meet the road? Where, where, or uh, I should say, how would you, how would you like to see us make actual relevant progress in this field? Yeah. And so there's lots of ways that I'd like to see it. I'd like to see us truly diversify our workforce. We know that is a very long and slow process mm-hmm. from getting people interested in healthcare in elementary school? And then how do we make sure that people's lived experiences are valued when it comes to entering medical school and all these other processes? And we're not just saying, oh, we'll take everyone with the highest grades, which is how we've done things for a very long time. Yeah, I'd like to see 
people of color not leaving medicine. I'd like to see the health outcomes and the death rates of people of color be similar to that of other racial groups. I'd like to see the same thing with health insurance access and quality and so that we don't see those racial disparities. And even though I'm talking about race, there's also lots of other things from LGBTQ community, from people with disabilities, gender disparities. I'd like to see that we don't have a culture of sexual harassment in medicine, which is an epidemic. Mm -hmm. There's so many things. And I think some of the challenge right now for other people that do this work is People are finally interested in something that we've been hitting our head against the wall and we have to pick just a couple things to work on when honestly we've been, we should have been working on these things in our institutions for decades and they want us to work on them now, but they're not giving the funding and support and raising their hands to also help and do it. Yeah. And um, so you said a couple of, you said a lot of things there. Um, I want to just ex- try to explore uh, a few of them if we can. Um, the first thing that you said was we want to help, um, for instance, black children in grade school or kindergarten, I forget exactly what you said, uh, feel like they're interested in healthcare as a, as a career or profession. Um, how do we go about doing that, for instance? Yeah, one of the challenges is policy takes a long time to see the benefits. But the way that we think in our institutions with our politicians are usually in one to four year cycles. Yeah. And so it makes it really hard to do big investments and things that truly need big investments. Mm -hmm. It's great when you have pipeline programs where you have medical schools or excuse me, medical students or residents or people that come in and do something for that community, but that's not true community engagement and them coming in once or twice and then leaving doesn't really help anyone. Yeah. And so we have to truly develop these infrastructure to do things over a long period of time and be willing to wait years to see the benefits without suddenly pulling the funding and support. Yeah. I feel like that happens all too often is, Oh, we didn't see any result from it because it only lasted a couple of years, but we're talking, uh, you know, benefits on the, on the order of generations here or, or at least more than a couple of years. Um, so where do you see these issues going? How do you see the, the current state of American healthcare, um, adding, uh, or I should say, uh, achieving higher outcomes, better outcomes in terms of, uh, health outcomes over the next five, 10, 15 years. That's really hard to say because so much of what happens with Healthcare depends on who is at the highest leadership in our country and the will of our elected representatives. Mm-hmm. Our system is so incredibly complex and so unique in each and individual sort of area. There's, I do think we're slowly making incremental change in the right direction, 
but at this incremental pace, we're still going to fail miserably. Mm-hmm. And there's certain fundamental aspects of our system that will never work with incremental change. One example of that is attaching health insurance to employment. Yeah. Every time we have a recession, because they always happen, it's a cyclical process. Yep. People suddenly lose their insurance, can't get care. That's not going to work. So there's people that advocate for starting over or removing insurance companies from the process or allowing negotiation with drug companies as they do in other countries. All these arguments require a lot of nuance and there's what would be great if we're starting over and then there's also what is practical. I don't know the answer to that and I don't know where the will is. I think it's just important that we continue having these conversations and continue pushing for change and whatever's feasible in our areas. And sometimes we have some feasibility to do these things on a local level, such as at a state level and just see what works for everyone so that we can have a better health because better health does not necessarily mean more health care. Yes, I agree with that. Um, you talked about uh, institutions on the state level. Uh, you are and I am uh, involved with the CAFP, the Colorado Academy of Family Physicians. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what that organization does and the purpose of it and what you do there? Yeah. So one of the largest medical groups in the country is the American Academy of Family Physicians. They're a national group advocating on behalf of family physicians across the country. Most states have their own chapter of the American Academy of Family Physicians. And so I'm part of the Colorado Academy of Family Physicians. And I've been proud to be part of their board for many years. They do lots of great work whether it is in how do we, with the mission being to be bold champions for family physicians and patients in this, in this state. Mm-hmm. And so I think what makes family physicians well-respected in Colorado is we truly try to put patients first and try to be as nonpartisan as possible in advocating for our patients and our diverse communities. And so a lot of our work does end up being on the policy side. And one of the policies we're super excited that we finally were able to move forward was a primary care initiative to help increase the way that we pay for primary care. Because we find that when you look across the world, countries that devote more funding to social structures in addition to primary care have better health outcomes overall. And so we are trying to move the needle on that ever so slowly with the goal of achieving better care for our patients. And so I'm excited to be part of an organization that continues to advocate for everyone in Colorado. Cool. I I like it. And I'm, uh, I just recently joined as a uh, student, a medical student board member, and I'm uh, new here, but I'm happy to, uh, be a part of the team. Yeah, we love having students and residents. I think it's important. I think that's even a good part of our diversity of our board is that you can have the gray hairs and the people that have been there for a while, 
but the new providers coming up in the system, you all can oftentimes bring the ideas and the voice that we need in order to provide family physicians and the people of Colorado the direction and the support that they need. Absolutely. Um, so we're talking about kind of a big part of your life uh, uh, and affecting patients and, and the people of Colorado, at least outside of the exam room, so as to impact their health. Uh, what other options are there for people? What else can we be doing as a medical community outside of the exam room that would really make an impact? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things we can do is truly be in our communities, engage with them. Just don't go from your office or the hospital back home. Go and see what the community organizations are doing to make a difference and partner with them. They are the experts on the community, not us as providers, mm -hmm. and see how we can support them and advocate for them using our own power, using our power and privilege and that can be advocating for them in our healthcare system, but also on the state and national level. We have an opportunity as physicians to raise up the voices of people that are oftentimes not heard, and we shouldn't take that lightly. I think that's probably the main thing I would recommend to physicians and physicians in training. You're saying be involved in your community, doesn't really matter how. Be involved and don't come in there like you're the expert. Gotcha. Yeah, that's but partner with them and help support them in whatever way they need support. That is wise. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit, although it's uh, something we just talked about recently, which is healthcare policy, and it's clearly tied uh, tightly to all the topics that we've been talking about. But I try to ask this to uh, most of my guests. I try to give them a magic wand. You have a magic wand now. How do you fix the healthcare system in America? What would you do differently? And um, how do you see the outcomes? Yeah, I think my magic wand would completely blow up our financing of healthcare. One of the biggest incentives we have in general is money. Right now, our system is geared mostly, not completely, but mostly towards doing things for people and how do you make a profit. Our financial incentives should be about keeping people healthy be patient-centered by having good health outcomes, not for doing things to patients, and that this incentive and having health insurance not be tied to someone's job or something that can be fleeting. Because we know that healthcare access is incredibly important. And if people don't feel comfortable seeing a doctor because they're worried about a bill, we're doing them a huge disservice. So does that look like a single payer option to you or some other version of, uh, of, of payment structure? 
Yeah, I I personally do not have an opinion whether it be single pair or multiple pairs. I think single pair is not practical in our country. But do I think it would potentially work? Yes, but you said a magic wand, so I will use my magic wand and we would all be a single pair. Okay. Why do you think it wouldn't be practical? I think it's not practical in the sense that we can't even get people to wear masks now. Fair enough. To get everyone to agree on something when there's actually lots of other interest to prevent that from happening doesn't seem practical to me. Yeah, you're, you're right. Um, I know we also talked about uh, kind of trying to make small steps in the right direction, but then sometimes that just doesn't work out because uh, of the reasons we mentioned earlier that they pull the plug on funding or that it, there is no real positive outcomes because it's only been a half a year or a year or whatever small amount of time. Um, so can we make small steps or do we have to blow it all up to, to get to where we want to go? I think we can make small steps. Do I ultimately think small steps will get us to where we need to be? No, but I think it can get us closer. Mm -hmm. And I think we have opportunities to be innovative and allow states and other smaller groups to try different things. Because if you can show it works on a smaller scale, then oftentimes can be helpful for making that a larger change. That's how we train people to do quality improvement. You don't suddenly change an entire system. Mm -hmm. You change a smaller part, work out all the kinks, and then you expand that to a larger group. And so I think that's how I can see us moving forward as a country. Has there been any notable examples of um, some location or municipality or something like that? Um, really uh, turning things on its head like that or making some notable step in the right direction? Yeah, and so that primary care funding that I was talking about happening here in Colorado was actually inspired by some work done in a smaller state in Rhode Island where they made it so that a certain percentage of all health care spending had to go towards primary care. And they found that health outcomes significantly improved and it kept costs down. What do you know? Uh, The Affordable Care Act, as people talk about it, was actually modeled very much so on what was done with Mitt Romney in Massachusetts. Right. And then a lot of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act talked about innovation models. And so giving states and other groups opportunities to just try some things out and see if it works. That ended up being underfunded, and so that didn't happen the way that we hoped it would. But there's definitely models out there that show how things work. Plus, we also are part of a big world. Other countries have healthcare and have done things that have been successful, and other countries also have some of the diversity that we have here. And by diversity, I also mean like geographical diversity and some of the challenges there with rural, urban etc yeah and so we're not just making things up there's models out there things that have worked in those areas cool i like it
I like it. Yeah, we have a lot to uh, a lot of data to choose from or to pick through, I guess. Um, awesome. Well, I I want to kind of transition into your life and career teaching. How does an average medical student or doctor or healthcare professional go about getting more education or getting involved in these in these matters? We mentioned a couple of organizations that they can get involved with, but how do you how do you see your colleagues uh, actually getting involved? Yeah, so there's lots of ways to get involved, and there's ways to get involved with this different different aspects. So if we're talking about with medical education. Mm-hmm. Reach out to your local medical school. They're always looking for providers to take on students and teach in various roles. And that can be everything from a small group or lecture or something one time to some longitudinal relationships. We, both of our wonderful medical schools in the state of Colorado would love to have more, more help with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to the community, like I said, just get out there and figure out what you're passionate about and just show up, show up and listen. And then after you start showing up, people begin to trust you and then you can partner with them and use your expertise to help them move forward their agenda. And when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism work, the first step is looking at yourselves and learning so learn, learn about how you have potentially contributed to the problem. Learn about the history of our country, the history of these aspects. And there's wonderful books and podcasts. Podcasts are Seeing White. I really enjoy. There's Code Switch. It comes a book, White Fragility, How to Be an Anti-Racist. can be pretty intense. Uh, but I also really like Cast, which I'm reading right now. Those are just a few examples of how you can get started and then find other like-minded people and together form a group, form a committee, and you can make a change uh, and use those advocacy skills to get the support and funding you need to make meaningful change and not just do something that pats yourself on the back. Cool. I love it. I, I uh, I really do appreciate that last statement that you just said which is that it's it's so easy for us just to kind of virtue signal and to pat ourselves on the back, whether it be a, a, a social media post or um, like we referred to earlier, uh, you know, an organization putting out a statement on whatever issue du jour. And it takes a little bit more effort or maybe quite a bit more effort to actually make some sort of impact, but you're also kind of telling us that really the biggest impact you can do, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort. It's just to show up for whatever specific or general aspect of your community that you want to be passionate about or that you are passionate about. Yeah. And there's a nice quote from, I can't remember who it's from at this moment, talking about the civil rights movement. It wasn't just a couple big names. It was thousands of people working together in their communities that led to change in the 60s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what it's going to take for us to transform healthcare, transform medical education, truly be anti-racist, 
et cetera. I agree. I, I agree. And, uh, and sometimes I find myself wishing that there was more time in the day or, or not finding the energy to get out to, uh, uh, get out and show up and, and take the passion that I am feeling and actually apply it to, uh, actually, you know, put in some time or effort or work into these fields. So I hope that, uh, this is uh, motivational for me already. I hope it's motivational for everybody listening or anybody listening to do the same. Yeah. And I think it's hard. We always have competing priorities and we're all so busy, but we always have time for what's important to us. Yep. And I think it also takes, uh, looking internal is like, how important is this for you? And like, for me, I hate reading books. Yeah. So I got my books on tape. And so yeah. just finding things that work or audio books. I don't know. I keep saying books on tape. Like I'm born in the 1980s. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I read you. I, uh, I actually, um, one is that I'm also, my instinct is to say books, books on tape. <laughs> And two, uh, I wanted to recommend that people listen to the uh, um, How to Be Anti-Racist book because um, I listened to it and I, you know, I don't think it would have been as powerful not hearing his voice and his expression and the way he's uh, reading, but also just telling about his uh, life story because a lot of it's autobiographical. Cool. Well, I, I really appreciate your time and all the, the oftentimes difficult topics that we got into today. Um, do you have any uh, parting words for our listeners or our, um, any words of wisdom, advice, or just anything you want to go out on? Uh, no, I think I love being a family physician. And the work I do in all aspects is incredibly hard and humbling, and I screw up all the time. But I think this is an incredible field where we have an opportunity to make huge impact on our patients and our community. And so the more we can do to push ourselves to be better and to show up, I think the more we can be that position and create a society that we're all proud of. Awesome. Well said. Well, thank you, Dr. Piggott. I really appreciate your time and, and talking to me here and, uh, hopefully we'll get to continue working together at CAFP. Yeah. See you at the next board meeting. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope that you got something out of listening to Dr. Piggott, and I hope that we can all remain inspired and motivated and dedicated to doing good things for our community, our families, and ourselves. So please treat yourself well by listening to my catalog of previously released episodes, and I look forward to the next one. So stay tuned. And play that theme song by the wonderful Colorado-based band, The Delicious Dishes.
Hit it. Now just add a little pizzazz, you know what I'm saying? was the universe and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves it was a fight for survival many died though friends were formed to fight mutual rivals man and woman appeared and they realized there was a thing called love bringing joy into their lives boom they were civilized went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne built empires and the stories well known History ticks along like a metronome And then I came to be Learned to walk, talk, and throw stuff All grown up, I got a job Now and showing up, I'm sleep deprived I'm misaligned My appetite is primed to feed the ego almost all the time And then I met you, lovely and smooth You quickly removed my modern man's blues I wanna celebrate every breath that I take Cause I'm afraid I'm dreaming and I don't wanna wait So baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold Pursue the search of love, but sometimes it hurt along the way. If there's anything I've learned, create a garden, plant flowers in the dirt. I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain, protect you from the pain as I push you toward the flames. Play the game and wonder, am I the hunted or the hunter? When I was younger, I met God and I hugged her. She said, hey baby, instead of getting lost within, how about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin? Stop, begin, let the thoughts and visions guide you further down the road, going inch by inch. Don't sprint. It's slow, protect your soul, travel long and far, but make sure to come home. Cause the love that's here is what keeps you going and gives you the power and the freedom to grow. Let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress. This life is crazy, but it's the goddamn best. When life gets complex, don't think, just do it first. It was simpler when the uterus was so big. Let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul. Body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my universe. All conversation and information exchanged and contained in the podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are board certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Oh.